You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romamu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. It may be a bit early in the year to start thinking about Yom Kippur. If you're a last-minute rabbi, this is uh, almost, you know, an eon before Yom Kippur. But I am, and it's not because, as I was thinking about this coming week's reading, yesterday morning, or was it, I think it was Wednesday morning, I was, no, Thursday morning. And I heard Leonard Cohen pipe through Starbucks, who by fire, and who, right, you guys know that. So, it's, that's not the reason, but I'm thinking about it, and... It's also not because, in a way, the connection between Yom Kippurim and Purim itself, which is said explicitly by the Zohar that Purim, the holiday of Purim, the holiday of mass and, and gentle inebriation and games and illusions, that too, says the Zohar, is a higher level than Yom Kippurim. Kippurim means it's, Purim is, is even greater than Yom Kippur, which is only like Purim. So I could have been thinking about Yom Kippur for that reason, but that's not the reason. But <laughs> I might get back to that, Purim and Yom Kippur. Certainly a good reason to think about Yom Kippur could be because in tomorrow morning's reading in the Parsha of the Week, in the portion of the week, we will read about an event called the Golden Calf. For those of you who are not up on your biblical stories, it goes like this. The Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have an immediate experience of God. In the language of the folk of the Midrash, they're under the chuppah, as it were. They're about to marry the divine. Vayizanu, and they have wandering eyes. They create a golden calf. They can't stay true to that experience. And in the aftermath of that moment, of that sin, there is, of course, the famous breaking of the tablets. And then tomorrow morning, we will receive new tablets. Moses will be instructed to ascend the mountain one more time, and this time he will descend with a new set of tablets given, as the rabbis say, on Yom Kippur itself. Right? The 13 attributes that we recite during the year, during the month preceding Yom Kippur, the Yud Gimel the 13 attributes of divine compassion, all of that happening tomorrow morning. So it's a Yom Kippur Dika Parsha tomorrow morning. Yeah? You agree with me? It's all happening tomorrow morning. But maybe that's not the reason either that I'm thinking about Yom Kippur. Maybe I'm thinking about Yom Kippur because in my own life I had an experience this week where having come back from a five-day retreat of prayer, being on the mountain as it were, receiving beautiful teachings, giving over teachings of my Rebbe, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalom, Shalom, and being in the general quiet of of that retreat center in LA where we were. I came back to New York and I had my own moment with people that I love that was very painful. People whom I work with that made me feel like I wish Yom Kippur was around the corner because I need to do some, some tshuva. I need to figure out tshuva. So I'm thinking about Yom Kippur this evening. And I'm thinking about those broken tablets those tablets that were smashed upon seeing the golden calf. 
And then the final part of the Parsha tomorrow morning, where Moses will go up to the mountain to receive the new tablets. And Moses will descend, and something absolutely radical is going to take place. Something that we read every year that we know about possibly, but I myself don't give enough thought to it. Just kind of went in there. And Moses came down from the mountain. And the two tablets of testimony were in the hands of Moses as he came down from the mountain. And Moses didn't know. He did not know that his face, the skin of his face, was luminescent, it was shining. This is, of course, the famous source for the Michelangelo and other, others who thought that Moses had a horn, which, by the way, is not so clear from the text. It actually could be horns, but rays of light. Karan orpanav, keren, the horns of light, the, the beams of light. Moses lo yada, Moses didn't know. What an amazing moment. First of all, one has to wonder, will Moses' face always be shining? Is this like a permanent acquisition? Will Moses' face be shining in the next book and the book after and the book after that? But even more deeply, what is it about Moses' face and its shining that is connected to the receiving of the two tablets? In other words, says the Beit Yaakov, the son of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, Yaakov Lehner of Ishbitz. Why didn't Moses' face shine when he received the first tablets? What is it about the second set of tablets that allowed Moses now to have a shining face? And I want to ask even more questions. How is it that Moses, who was told that he wouldn't see God's face because no one can see the face of God and live, now Moses ironically becomes the one whose face can't be seen? I want to ask more. I want to ask about the usage of the term lo yada, and Moses didn't know that his face was shining. Because earlier in the Parsha, tomorrow morning, we're going to hear about another group of people who don't know something. The people who gather around Aaron and say, ish Moshe lo yadanu. We don't have any idea where he went. We're anxious. Our lack of knowing is scary to us. Let's set up a golden calf. And now here at the end of the Parsha, Another not knowing, but it's a not knowing of Moses. He doesn't know that his face is shining. I want to ask a last question. Where did the light come from? Where does the light come from? So let's go one by one, okay? So the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, in answering his own question, why does Moses' face shine only after the second tablets and not after the first ones? He says, because the light of the first tablets were so intense the experience, the intimacy, the, the power was so overwhelming that Moses, that Moses, he couldn't understand. He couldn't, the, the tablet's energy was so intense, it needed a second iteration for him to finally get it. Kind of like he says, you know, maybe like the first marriage that Shaul was talking about, the first love. The first love. Or as Paul Ricoeur, the, the French existentialist philosopher calls first naivete. You're so taken by it. It's, it's so perfect. It's pristine. There's no space between you and that. 
It's first naivete. It's, it's perfect. And in the world of perfect, says the Ishbitzer, there's no room for the shining of Moses' face. It's obliterated in the power, the luminescence of that perfect tablet. There's no room for Moshe. The broken tablets act, he says, to allow Moses to internalize and therefore to shine. It's the second stage. It's the second naivete. It's a second knowing that includes the first, but it's a, a softer knowing. He says the second tablets represent that. And of course, there, that's when the light will shine. And what about where the light comes from? And on this, you have to hold on to your hats because this Midrash is going to blow you out of the water. <laughs> says the Midrash, they, heard, they asked that question. Okay, second tablets, great. That's where the light comes from. That's where the light appears. But where does it come from? Mehechan natal Moshe karne hahod. One group says from the cave where he was hidden as God passed before the cave and Moses saw the back of God's face. Another group say it comes from the tablets themselves. Two, tab- two parts of the tablet went to Moses, two parts of the tablet went to God, and the middle two pieces of the tablet, two tfachim, that's where the light comes from. And here's the last opinion. There are some who say that the light that shone through Moses' face came from a quill that he was using to write the Torah that had ink left in it, and that that ink became Moses' illuminated face. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) Where does the light come from, says the first opinion? From the cave where Moses learned that in the dark he could see something very powerful. You see, one of the great ironies of this this reading tomorrow morning is that there's a group of people who stay up and say, we want to see God. So they set up a golden calf And then Moshe comes along and he says, how dare you? You didn't know where I was and you set up this visual, this object, this thing in place of the dynamic being that is God and smashes the tablets. And then what does Moses do? He goes up to the mountain. He pleads with God. He says, God, forgive the people. And then once God has forgiven the people, what does Moses then do? He says, God, can I see you? (laughs) Right? They shouldn't be making objects. But I want to see you. I really want to know you. I really want to see you. Moses comes along and says, they set up an object, but I, I want to see your face. And God says, no, you can't see my face. You see the back of my head. You have to learn to see in the dark, Moshe. You have to learn that it isn't the glow. It's not about the glow. It's not about my face, Moshe. It's about learning to see in the dark, learning to see in the yearning, learning to see in the absence of certainty, learning to be in the absence of knowing. You, Moshe, you should know that. You can't see my face. Because as long as you're looking for my safe, Moshe, you're, you're still seeking my face. No, no, no. That's the first. So, so Moshe gets it. He sees the back of God's head, and so his face lights up. And I want to skip to the last opinion. What's with this quill business? 
Anybody know? Who has an idea about why the quill that writes the Torah should have in it the source of Moses' light? Moses. 